get a lot of books on American history. You read them all? Yeah, that's why they're here. If you want to read a real history book, read Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. That book will knock you on your ass. Really? Yeah. Well, actually, Dr. Mary Graybar debunked Howard Zinn, so... Oh. Uh, Well, what about Anna Nicole Smith's The 69 Project? You mean Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project? Yeah, that's what I said, The 1619 Project. Well, actually, they both sucked, but... Dr. Mary Graybar actually debunked the 1619 Project as well, so suck it. Hmm. Okay. Actually, we're going to have Dr. Mary Graybar on the show. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, yeah. And rest assured, she's wicked smart. <laughs> <laughs> and you're wicked dumb. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Sons of History podcast. I am Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And we are going to have a delightful conversation with our guest this week. But before we do, this week in history. All right, so I'll start with the this week in history. Now, I can't give you a precise date because nobody knows for sure. Oh, but God. Yeah. But if you go back 2,500 years ago this week, and it should be September the 26th, which is this coming Sunday. Mm-hmm. Some people say the 27th, but we're going to do with the 26th for right now. There we go. If you ever saw the movie 300, Rise of an Empire, which was the sequel to the movie 300, you'll remember the great naval battle that took place between the Greeks and the Persians. Well, that was known as the Battle of Salamis. That took place 2,500 years ago this week, if you're using the proper calendar and and state that there was no year zero. Now, what was the Battle of Salamis? Okay, if you remember the movie 300, uh, King Leonidas uh, led his 300 Spartans, and there were, although they didn't really show it in the movie, there were actually 7,000 Greeks altogether, and they were there to to, uh, stop the the Persians, uh, King Xerxes, um, after a three-day battle, they were defeated. Um, the Persians went through. They, they destroyed Athens, Plataea, uh, Thespia. And then as they kept going to conquer the rest of Greece, uh, there was uh, Themistocles, who was in the movie 300 Rise of an Empire, and um, uh, the Spartan Euripides. Euripides, I think that was his name. Euripides, there we go. Yeah. Uh, now, Euripides and Themistocles led a naval engagement against the Persians and defeated them at the Battle of Salamis. I always thought it was Eurybiades. Eurybiades. I, I don't know. know. I can't, you know, <laughs> it's like I read the book and I'm like going, I, there's no phonetics in these books. But, but Eurybiades was a Spartan and Themistocles was a uh, Athenian. And um, now, uh, Queen Artemisia, the Evergreen, you know, mm. the really hot, Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. She was uh, Lent Vesper Lynn in the oh, yeah. James. Yeah. Okay. She was a real person and she actually led a ship in that battle. Um, and King Xerxes sat and watched the battle. So you're talking about now, depending on who the historian is, there were about 600 to 800 Persian ships versus about 370, 368 to 378 Greek ships. And they fought in the narrow straits of the, of the Salamis because the. 
they knew that with the bigger numbers, they couldn't openly engage them in the, or in the open seas. They had mm-hmm. to do it kind of in the narrow areas. So uh, the Greeks had heavier ships, and they were able to... They lost 40 ships in the process. The, the Persians lost about 200 to 300, depending on who the historian is. It was a huge defeat. It was the high-water mark for the Persians in the invasion of Greece in 480 and 479 BC. Well, there you go. So, yeah, it happened this week, 2,500 years ago. Beautiful. Well, my choice happens on September 22nd, 1776. There was a guy by the name of George Washington who needed spies to go behind enemy lines out in New York, and one of those spy volunteers was a man by the name of Nathan Hill. Uh, One day after a massive fire that broke out in New York City, he was arrested um, and sort of charged as a spy. The next day, they hung him up, and he died. Now, apparently, not before saying that I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. So, pretty interesting. September 22nd, 1776, and in 1985, Connecticut actually, the Connecticut legislature, uh, officially designated Nathan Hill as the state hero. Pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. So, that was This Week in History. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are about to have our next guest. This is the second episode of the new season. Second episode, second season. Alan, are you excited about this next guest? I've been excited ever since you told me she was coming back on our show. You know, yeah. we I remember the first time we talked about debunking Howard Zinn. I was mm-hmm. reading this book and I mean I hadn't even been finished. I hadn't even finished a book and I was yeah. like, we need to get her on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. And she graced us with a conversation last year, and she is back with us to talk about her new book, Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. Are you ready, Doctor? I am ready. You want to show the uh, audience the book? You were holding it. I mean, I think you know well, what it it's looks gonna like. Well, it's going to show a screen. It's going to show a graphic, you know? Mm-hmm. Had you watched, uh, you know, the most recent episode, you'll know that there's a graphic up there. But, you know, I'm always prepared. I'm always ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's get started. All right, let's All do right, it. just to do you a favor. <laughs> All right, everybody, we've got Dr. Mary Graybar on the line. Dr. Mary Graybar, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? We are. We're doing pretty good. Fantastic. Yes, yes. We are doing so much better now that you have arrived, um, and it is going to be so great talking to you. We, uh, we had you on the show uh, I think it was last year when we discussed your, your book, Debunking Howard Zinn, and we that was a really fun conversation. It was. I remember that conversation because I was here, you were at your place, she was at her place, yeah. we were all, but somehow we all came together. I was at home, I think, I don't know if I was sick or I was on call, but uh, this time, when he told me that we're going to have you back on the show, I made sure I'm not on call, I'm going to be here, so... That's why we can have a much better conversation. And I, yes, I have been looking forward to this for quite some time. So we, um, we are obviously going to be discussing your, your new book came out September 7th of this year. Uh, so it is, is just now out, Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. I got to ask you, thus far, um, we're only a couple of weeks into your book being released. How has the reception been to your book? 
Well, it depends on if they're, uh, you know, people who are my enemies are just ignoring it. And I found the same thing happened with the Howard Zinn book until I was a panelist at the White House Conference on American History um, a year and a day ago, sadly, when, uh, you know, Donald Trump was still president. <laughs> I still remember that day fondly. And then all the leftists came out of the woodwork and accused me of, you know, uh, attacking the poor Howard Zinn who'd been dead for 10 years and so forth, you know, which is irrelevant. Um, but I was on Fox and Friends this morning and uh, there seems to be a demand for the book because the Amazon sales improved quite a bit. So, um, that got a lot of traction. Uh, people are buying it. I think they hear about it. And I think they're wanting to have a resource that they can go to because they know that the 1619 project, which is being slipped into their schools, is just absolutely toxic propaganda for their kids. Well, I was, I was going to say that anybody who's listening and watching these two books are required reading the um this the 1619 project and debunking Howard Zinn. Now this is how I I discovered uh discovered you Dr. Graybar. I read this book. I saw that it was recommended. I read it and before I was even finished I remember telling Dustin here we need to interview this lady. So um these two books I am telling you, this needs to be required reading for everybody. So there's a lot of homeschooling going on right now. Uh, parents, buy these two books. Amen. So, okay. Now, uh, let us um, let's begin. Now, the 1619 Project. I want to ask you now, what are some of the deliberate lies, the half-truths? And I'm sure there's got to be some truths, maybe, kind of. I'm not sure. But um, could you tell us... Um, what some of the lies they have truths and and some of the stuff that that is factual in the 1619 project that you address in your book yeah well i think one of the i think we can start with the big one which is that um slavery here was unlike anything that had ever existed in the world before and that's the title of one of my chapters because of its slavery has existed as long as we know, as far back in time as we can go historically, slavery has been around. It's been an institution. It's, uh, you know, older than the oldest profession probably. And it was practiced worldwide. It's been justified by the major religions. Um, I don't think there's anything in the Bible against it, nor in other uh, religious texts. Uh, it's been accepted as part of the normal course of human existence for most of time. It's relatively recently in history, in world history, that uh, the idea of enslavement has been seen as a crime and uh, something that should be abolished. So um, that right there is false. And if you are a student and you read the 1619 Project and you have no other knowledge about history, you would think that it was that slavery was something that was invented by the colonists 
and deliberately instituted here, deliberately um, practiced in order to gain wealth, um, and that it wasn't being done anywhere else in the world. Um, one of the truths is that yes, people did profit from it, um, but the half truth or what's left out is that there were also uh, black slave owners. That's not mentioned and it's not mentioned that um, the other Africans are the ones who initially captured the slaves. They did the raids, they captured them, sold them to the African or Muslim middlemen who then marched them off to the coast, put them in the barracoons where many did not even survive, the conditions were so horrid. And that's when the Europeans came and purchased them. So this, this notion that the Europeans went uh, into the hinterland and just kidnapped, which is the word that's being used in the 1619 project, kidnapped these Africans is historically wrong. It has, it has only been tried a few times. That was by the Portuguese. And each time they did it, they just got slaughtered. And so um, they relied on the Africans to capture these slaves initially. Sometimes they did employ the services of warrior tribes like the Imbangala uh, who, who went into Angola and helped them, but by themselves, they just could not do that. So those are some of the big things. And I think the reason that those uh, fallacies are promoted is because the author uh, or the creator of this whole project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, wants to make this a black versus white issue. So blacks are the only ones who are enslaved and the only uh, enslavers are white people. And that's the the setup that she gives. Um, so, so those are, you know, just a couple of the big ones. I can go into Thomas Jefferson and, um, <laughs> you know, what what's said about him, and 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 there are, you know, many other uh, parts of the 1619 project that are just factually wrong. So speaking of Thomas Jefferson, in your book, you, you, you mentioned that Thomas Jefferson is sort of seen as the linchpin for the 1619 Project. Um, how, how is that? And, and why do you think the creators pinpointed him? Yeah, well, Thomas Jefferson has changed in reputation generally, uh, according to, you know, textbooks and historians that tend to be on the left. He was known as the apostle of liberty because he uh, wrote the Declaration of Independence or largely did. And um, he was a promoter of freedom of conscience and religion and was seen as someone who, you know, was a proponent of freedom. Um, that has changed. Be by virtue of the simple fact that he owned slaves. So it's a very simplistic equation. You, you, know, you cannot be uh, an advocate of liberty if you own 
slaves. So he has been cast as the ultimate hypocrite because of his ownership of slaves. And um, of course he is presented in the 1619 project, not only as a you know enslaver, but one of the worst that uh, he owned um, slave labor camps, you know, evoking the images of, you know, Nazi concentration camps and the gulags of the Soviet Union. And, you know, he was like the other enslavers who often worked the slaves to death. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that uh, you know, he was only concerned about making money and he had absolutely no concern about those who were enslaved by him and that he saw them as subhuman. And it's like a whole long list of charges against him that don't hold up to historical fact. So, so a lot of these, you know, a lot of the historians today like to talk about a person's lived experience, right? What was life, you know, that's as valid as the statistics and the research you do in the dusty archives. But if you read, you know, about Thomas Jefferson's life, he was born into a slaveholding family. His earliest memory uh, from the time, he, uh, from the age of two or three, was of being carried on horseback on a pillow. I don't know how he did that, <laughs> the slave, you know, put, put this two-year-old on, on horseback, uh, you know, to, to his, the new estate. Um, so here, here you have this image of this toddler, basically, being carried by a slave on horseback. And you think about that. Think about that image. That's not a subhuman. I don't know if you guys have kids, but you know you wouldn't entrust your child to a subhuman. So there's that stereotype. Um, Jefferson, uh, when he came of age, his father had died when he was 14. He he was entrusted with the care of these people. It was a responsibility. In Virginia at the time, you could not just simply say, you are free, go out and find a job. Um, there were strict manumission laws. For the longest time, the slaves had to be sent out of state. Uh, anyone in good conscience would have to provide for them. Um, and so there were all these obstacles. And Jefferson indeed did want to see the abolition of slavery. And the 1619 Project says that neither he nor any of the founders who owned slaves cared about abolishing slavery, which in fact is not true. So uh, it's a gross distortion of who Thomas Jefferson was. And there's a lot of evidence of, you know, about the things that he did and that he said, uh, the actions he took in regards to abolition or, you know, gradual abolition. So when we say abolition, we tend to think of, you know, garrison, you know, people who are out there, you know, the utopians who, uh, you know, want to 
basically tear down the government and real radical. That, that wasn't Thomas Jefferson. He was a statesman and he could see that violence was brewing and he could detect that a civil war was coming. And he knew also that if he took actions and they were the wrong actions, it could actually exacerbate the problem and make things worse for slaves and prolong uh, the institution of slavery in terms of how long it lasted. Well, now the next question I'm going to ask, there's a, there's a reason for it. Um, I've had debates with, with atheists and agnostics about, you know, the creation was, you know, did we have um, uh, intelligent design or was evolution, um, you know, which one created Earth? Or the universe, and some of my agnostic and atheist friends were saying, "Well, evolution should be taught in a science class, not intelligent design, because that's not science." So this is where I'm going to lead into this next one. Uh, Ron Chernow, who wrote a really great book about Washington, was in a panel with uh, is it Nicole Hannah Jones? Nicole Hannah Jones, and I was curious as to why Chernow didn't call her out, kind of like. You know, if intelligent design is not science, why is this lady on this show when she's not a historian? So, and what she wrote is not and, history. And what, I mean, what she wrote is not history. So now you're his, historical. Yeah. Yeah. Now your book pushes back against the 1619 Project. Now, why why is it important for people like Chernow or historians, educators, politicians, and even the average citizen to push back? Have they? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very good point, and that's um, that's something I've noticed uh, with historians on the left, and also with Howard Zinn. So they are critical, like Michael Kazin was, and you know, lambasted uh, a People's History of the United States in Dissent magazine. But as soon as Mitch Daniels wanted to, it was learned that he had wanted to. Um, prohibit its use in public schools, then they jump to the defense of the leftist, even though they know that their scholarship is shoddy or it's just completely false, you know. Um, and, I, and I think you're talking about, I think that was on MSNBC and they were talking about the January 6th insurrection. Um, and David, uh, uh, David Blight was on there, the biographer of Frederick Douglass. Um, and they, yeah, that, that really surprised me, especially with uh, Chernow doing that. And, and I don't know if it's, they want to keep their leftist bona fides or, um, they really just hate conservatives so much that even when conservatives agree with them, that they will be antagonistic to conservatives and um, sort of justify the kinds of projects that Nicole Hannah-Jones has. So, so one of the, and, and this also happened with Sean Wilentz and with Leslie Harris. And so their justification is, is that 
uh, slavery was central to our history, which I would disagree with. It wasn't central. Um, and that the conservative criticism is a threat to keeping slavery um, and the oppression of blacks as a focal point. But what I would say to that is that there's an incredible amount of uh, historical research and writing that has been done on slavery. Uh, you know, the president of the Alexander Hamilton Institute, where I am here, resident fellow, Robert Paquette, is one of the best known historians on slavery. Um, he was a student of Jean Genovese. So, you know, he calls himself a conservative. So there is a tension on slavery, but I think it's, it's just an excuse. And it really is shameful in, you know, my opinion that someone would stoop that low and maybe in order just to get a, a spot on television or to uh, oppose conservatives, I, I think I think it, it says something about their character and and it also sullies their reputations as historians. You know, so if you're if you're willing to bend and to uh, pull back from your criticism in order to, to um, you know, have a platform with this person and be, you know, sort of radical. I think that says something about your credibility and your integrity. Well, okay. Now in your book, well, okay. Let me, let me go back a little bit. Um, I'm sure you've seen the movie Schindler's List. I actually haven't. You have not seen that. Okay. Well, you know, there was a transformation. Neither have I. Don't what worry do you about you? it. I, I haven't. <laughs> you I, haven't was seen... I was making out the whole time. Oh, funny. Yeah, you like that? Newman. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, I honestly, I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? It's yeah. a good movie. But, I know it is. But, but Oscar but... Schindler had, there was a kind of his, uh, a transformation, a a moment uh, where he opened up his eyes and, and realized something's wrong. This whole thing is wrong. And in, and, you know, he was a member of the Nazi party who ended up, you know, helping the Jews. So, um, you know, the, the founding fathers had a transformation. And, you know, because as, as they were talking and discussing freedom and liberty, and I, I know that many of them were like having an aha moment, you know, how can we defend freedom and at the same time own slavery? So, th which leads to the next question is, is that, you know, um, you know what? I I know that based on including the Declaration of Independence, that the institution of slavery, it was there were steps taken to end it, and now there was some pushback from the South. But but we are hearing from the advocates of the 1619 Project that the revolution, the American Revolution, was fought to protect the institution of slavery from Britain which I know is false, but what is the book state? What, where do you prove, or, or what is it that you, how do you address this in terms of 
the, the false claims that the American Revolution was to defend slavery. Yeah. Well, the way she, she uh, does that is to speak in generalities and to say that, um, you know, the British were having second thoughts about slavery and she's not specific. And actually, it was Sean Wallace in his Atlantic article, Atlantic Magazine article, who uh, disputed the, that, as did other historians, um, you know, that, you know, the, the abolitionist movement uh, was starting here in the 1760s and 1770s, and the movement to abolish the slave the international slave trade in London did not begin until 1787. So in terms of chronology, she's just wrong. And, and I think one of the things uh, she does is she, she uses a lot of sophistry. So she'll use terms like, you know, some, and, and that was sort of the adjustment that was made uh, by the New York Times later to say, you know, some of the colonists wanted to protect slavery. And of course, if you if you can find two colonists that that's technically correct then, right? Um, but, you know, the, the, the fighting had started and, uh, you know, a year before uh, she, there's no, there's no justification in terms of specifics in the 1619 project that to back up the claim that the colonists were worried uh, because you know Britain was on its way to outlawing slavery. So it's all very vague and it doesn't comport with, with the history. Well, I will, and another thing I was going to state is um, Thomas Sowell. I love reading Thomas Sowell and you know, he's, he's, written a lot about slavery and and I, I was surprised when I first read uh, some of his works where he said that um, India and China had more slaves than the, than the entire uh, North and the Americas North and South America so so my next question is is that you know and we mentioned this earlier about America being portrayed as having a monopoly on slavery didn't America and Britain, weren't they the ones that helped lead the way to end slavery? At least in the West. Well, yes, of course. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, it was um, the, the Quakers who were first uh, prompted by, I think, these, um, these Germans in um, Pennsylvania and, you know, the Quakers were slave owners. And so you already start having that in the early 18th century, this movement to end slavery. And it emerges from the Western tradition. So even within the institution of slavery, you have the church fathers who are like St. Basil saying, uh, you know, that there is a code of morality or ethics for slave owners. So within this institution, they say, you should try to keep the family units together. Um, you know, you need to treat these people 
humanely. You can't just do anything with them. You can't just, you know, work them to death as Nicole Hannah Jones claims. So there was a code of ethic within that uh, institution. And so that progresses and leads to, you know, looking at this and saying, well, why have slaves at all? So it's a gradual evolution and it comes, you know, from the Western uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, um, you know, in the rest of the world, you know, people are like wondering, you know, what, what do you mean I can't have slaves? So, uh, you know, there, there was, uh, you know, in my Zen book, I, I, I get a, a, a quotation from Bernard Lewis, who uh, relates the story of the uh, Sultan of Morocco, who's asked by some British diplomat or something um, in 1842, so what are you gonna do about slavery? And he's like, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> why, why, what's wrong with it, right? And, um, and you have slavery in Africa, you still have it to this day, even though it's been uh, formally outlawed in Mauritania, you, you have um, uh, sub-Saharan Africans who are enslaved by the Muslims, by the lighter skinned Muslims. And I go into some of the practices of slavery in Africa. Uh, slaves were often used as sacrifice uh, during the funerals for people of wealth, uh, sometimes buried alive. And uh, so you, you, you know, in terms of, you know, when you look at those practices and the lack of a code of ethics, and then with, you know, declaring independence and being forced that way, as you said, to look at these people who are not independent um, you know, you know, we are, you know, the Western tradition um, is definitely advanced in terms of freedom and liberty, and it has been a beacon for the world. You know, your your book um, does such a good job of. I mean, that's that's the whole purpose is to de debunk the 1619 project. And what I thoroughly enjoyed, among many things, about your book is that it wasn't a Mary Graybar commentary. It was, I'm pulling from all of these sources, contemporary sources, um, and numerous his historians that have already done all this work um, that in order to write a something like the 1619 Project, it requires you to ignore all of those historians. And it also requires you to ignore a lot of what the contemporaries were doing, like the founding fathers and all the work that they were doing before 1776 to end the slave trade, including Thomas Jefferson um, and including George Washington. Um, but I want to ask you this in, in, in my review that I did of your book, I, I pointed this out because I thought it was important. Uh, we noticed that you pulled from historians across the political aisle left, right, and center. Uh, why was that important to do? Well, I want to, I want to be fair and, um, you know, and I, I want to acknowledge the work that these historians do. So 
Um, you know, if, uh, you know, David Blight gets on MSNBC and starts spouting off about politics, and I think it's unfair, or if he goes into commentary in his book, the same with Sean Wilentz, well, I know that's commentary, but if their work is good, uh, I have to acknowledge it, and I see it as valuable, and so I evaluate it and you know, look at their sources, look at how they are treating you know, that particular situation. I think you can pretty much tell if someone is biased. Um, so their work, their research is good. It's when they go off into the commentary that I don't go along with them. So I, you know, I wish it, I wish it would work the other way. I wish there was this sort of sense of collegiality among scholars where, you know, people could sit down as they used to as, at some point, you know, that, that's what academic conferences were, where you sat down and you presented your research and you read and people questioned you and they said, you should consider this or, you know, oh no, you know, on this point, you know, you, you've gotten, I think you might be wrong or misled. And, and that's the way it should work. It shouldn't be, you know, well, um, even if you're right, I'm gonna say you're wrong because I don't agree with your politics. So I think, I think politics should be kept out of it, uh, out of, you know, scholarship as much as possible um, you know, I know I call myself a conservative. I tend, that's, that's what I am politically, but I also consider myself a conservative in the sense that I want to conserve what is best in our civilization, in the West, you know, in Western civilization. And that is this reliance on reason and debate and collegiality and respect and for what happened in the past. So, you know, when I look at the past, I want to put myself in that person's shoes. Um, you know, so my PhD is in English and I tend to think in literary terms. And so um, when I was reading about Thomas Jefferson, I was thinking, wow, this is, this is really very interesting. What was his life like? And you get that sense if you read Dumas Malone. But I also wanted to find, I also was curious about the slave that's carrying two-year-old Thomas Jefferson across the fields, right? What's his life like? His life has meaning. You know, he's not just a pure victim, um, you know, whose life, you know, has no meaning. All these people's lives had meaning and you have to respect that. And one of the things that happens in the 1619 Project, I've been thinking about this is, you know, Thomas Jefferson is demonized. There are demons and there are saints. All the demons are white, the saints are black. And, but the saints are just victims. And you don't get a sense that these are real people. 
they're not just, you know, complete uh, victims who are constantly whipped. I mean, they had some agency, they had um, aspirations, they loved, you know, they were fully human. And I think the big crime of the 1619 project is that it dehumanizes everyone. And if you go back to Nicole Hannah Jones and think about what she said during the 2020 riots, right? And she said, she was proud of the fact that, she, that the 1619 project inspired rioting. Well, there were between 25 and 30 people who were killed. Some of those people happened to be black. Um, the St. Louis retired police chief, I think his name is David Dorn or something like that. Well, he, his life has meaning, right? And it's the same thing with history. So I think, I think this kind of um, ideological ax grinding just really dehumanizes everyone. I don't know if I got off the subject there, but I kind of went off on a tangent. No, um, I, I, I think that that was, I think you answered that fine. I mean, you're, you're pulling meaning from, from all the historians. And I think it was, to me, it was a, like a breath of fresh air to see because there were a number of historians that, that I noted in there. I'm like, okay, I, I know this one, you know, leans left. I know this one was center. I know this one was right. Um, and it was great to see that because uh, you can always guarantee that there's going to be pushback and be like, oh, this is a strictly conservative. It's just like, no, this is a compilation of a massive amount of history. And that's, uh, that was just the, the great thing about this book. Now, I have one more question uh, left, unless something has come up upon you. No, no, I'm, I'm enjoying, I am enjoying this discussion. I, I would love to just sit and, you know, uh, have a beer with you, do like a beer <laughs> summit and just talk about, about this for hours. hours. We but, do uh, need to have a beer summit with all the historians that we've had conversations with. That would be Absolutely stellar. But I do have one last question. Uh, you dedicate your book to Eugene Genovese. Why him? Who is he? Well, Eugene Genovese is someone that I knew in the last five years of his life when I was teaching at Emory. He died in 2012. And as I mentioned before, he uh, taught uh, Robert Paquette, um, who is the president of this institute. And he also uh, taught Douglas Ambrose, who is uh, one, one of the other founders. So there were three founders of this institute, of uh, the Alexander Hamilton Institute, who were teaching at Hamilton College. And, and two, of the, two of those uh, were Gene's students. Um, Gene, Gene was, I don't know, I, I just really, I, I, you know, if you met Gene, you would love him. He was just a, a great guy. He was funny. He had uh, this dry sense of humor. Um, I think he had a, um, a moral compass. He could see through things. And of course, you, you may know that he was a at one time a member of the Communist Party, right? And he 
I guess he was kicked out or he left because he, he said he zigged when they should have zagged. You know, he wasn't following orders and he had a, a conversion. He returned to Catholicism at the urging of his wife, Elizabeth Fox Genovese. Um, and so I, I admire him for that. I used to tease him one time. We would have lunches about a few times a year. And, I, and once I brought this book from his radical days, when he was, uh, <laughs> you know, leading a teaching or something. But, um, but I also, what I admire about his kind of scholarship is that he, even during his Marxist years, uh, he was true to the evidence. So in 1969, you may recall, there was this meeting of the American Historical Association where I think it was, it was Howard Zinn and some other historians who, who wanted to put out a statement against the Vietnam War. And they felt that as historians, they had a moral duty to speak out. And Gene, even though he was a Marxist then, was uh, you know, a dedicated historian, he was principled and he said no, because once you start becoming an activist as a historian, you start changing the evidence. You start manipulating and you start lying. And that's exactly what has happened since the 1960s. And we, you know, we see it manifested, especially in Howard Zinn, who really wanted to do that. So um, I admire him for having done that. And when you and when you um, read his works, he acknowledges the complexity of the institution of slavery. And he, he seems to, to try to understand all the people that are involved. He can, as I, I have a line in, um, in debunking the 1619 Project where he says, you know, for all the horrible things that the slave masters did to their slaves, you have to acknowledge that they warned us about totalitarianism. So there is good and bad in all people. And, and, and he, as an honest historian, recognized that and, um, and understood also that you know to not acknowledge um, the agency that the slaves had, you know, with their limitations. You know, there was bargaining. There was there were rewards. There were masters who you know, uh, you, you know, were horrible. There were others that used. Um, you know, a combination of rewards and punishments. So it's all very complicated. And so he was honest to the material and worked with it rather than manipulating it and using it for his own purposes in this kind of egotistical way as a, as a crusader. So, um, 
you know, there, there were just many things to admire. The last thing was, uh, here I am in this building. It's a, it's a mansion that was built in 1832. So uh, we became independent and Gene left his books on slavery and they're downstairs. And so when I was writing this book, uh, there's like a whole shelf of Thomas Jefferson books and all six volumes of Dumas Malone's uh, biography of Thomas Jefferson. And he just seemed, you know, his spirit seemed to be here when I was writing this book and going through uh, his pages and he had, you know, respectfully notated them in light pencil. Hmm. Nice. Uh, yeah, I needed respectfully notate in light pencil in my books because I, I jab in ink. Um, well, well said and, and, and well-deserved, uh, for that, that dedication. And Dr. Graybar, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Um, and I'm so glad that Alan came across your book and now we've had you on the show twice. So it's just been great. Yeah. I, I, I tell people, everyone who, who will listen, you need to read these books. You just, Mm -hmm. Because I can't tell you how many times I've had discussions just about Christopher Columbus alone. And, you know, I've used your information and people were like, what? What do you mean? I'm like, yeah, I mean, look it up. And, and I've had people, like, as you mentioned about how Howard Zinn used the ellipses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they would, they would quote me word for word. And they would put the ellipses on there saying, okay, this is what Columbus said. And I'm like... No, he didn't. And then I would, I mean, I would, he sort of did. Yeah, I would, I would whip out like his journals and said, yeah. "This is what he said." I said, "This was, you know." So thank you because I can't tell you how many times you've saved my neck. Yeah, because it's so important. <laughs> it is so important because uh, Alan and I. Are, I mean, we already know, and I think you know, probably a vast majority of people already know that uh, to an extent, these books are not going to be read by one political aspect of of the country but from the right or at least conservatives um, and moderates who will read uh, these books to an extent your books will get over to the left uh, via conversation and I think that's an incredibly important so thank you again for all that you're doing Dr. Graybar and thank you again uh, for being on the Sons of History podcast Okay, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, Dr. Kevorkian, uh, that was a great interview. Uh, it was worth the wait. I, uh, I'm glad you uh, got her back on the show. I am too. And Dr. Kevorkian is the name that I use for you. Well, I would prefer Dr. Doolittle. Actually, you should be Dr. Doolittle because you're such a massive fan of the Doolittle Raid. Oh, well, you know, that I did get to become friends with uh, one of the actually the last living Doolittle Raider mm-hmm. and uh, and his daughter. So, yeah. yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I will tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, regarding the 1619 Project uh, book, the debunking 1619 Project, I honestly can't advise you enough to read this book. Not only because it's going to give you a rundown of debunking the 1619 Project, but it will introduce you to a number of historians that you should be reading, especially if you're wanting to know the history of slavery. Um, and so it's, it is a very powerful book. And that was one of the things is, it, that struck me is that there was so many sourced writing in there. It was like so many quotes in there. It wasn't, you know, Dr. Mary Graybar, this is how I feel and this is how I see it. And like, no, no, no. 
she went straight at the accusations and debunked them via historical fact. Mm-hmm. And that was that was it. So and, and you know now the, these these books of hers are a manual because we all have to take up I guess the term is take up the mantle mm-hmm. um, and you know defend our country defend Western civilization because you know the United States is a great country do we you know have we done things wrong has this country done things yes. wrong of course and you know have and we we've talked we right. have talked about them but you know when you when you you know, when you compare... You, but you don't destroy progress in the name of progress. Right. I mean, you, you don't... Okay, granted, yes, there is the center, but you look at what they have accomplished, What you know, what they have created, what they've left for us, a great country, mm-hmm. freedom. Everybody is fallible. I mean, I think the last person that, you know, was without sin lived about, what, 2,000 years ago? So yeah, and lived only about 33 and a half years before they killed him. Yeah, so... And they the state killed him. So, yeah, hello. you know... So you can't just sit there and look at the person who was the sinner and say, okay, forget about you know the things that they built for us that we cherish to this day. Exactly. So we all we all have to stand up and defend our country, mm-hmm. and you know, Dr. Mary Graybar gives us each the manual to you know to put up the fight, to do just the armor that. and the yeah. sword. Yeah. And speaking of books. <laughs> Book and movie recommendation. This is my book recommendation. Uh, if you want to get a quick view on how I personally feel about it via the Sons of History, you can go check out the book review that I put up uh, that I that was published on the Epic Times. I uh, did a book review. That was our first book review. Um, so yeah, check it out. It was released. This book was released September seventh, um, and it is for sale. Go get it. Get some for your friends and your family members. Uh, as well learn it know it replicate all right my movie recommendation so we were just in Fredericksburg so I had uh had my uh, stein with me my beer stein um it says Fredericksburg on there and people of Fredericksburg were awesome everybody was great there um and while I was in the hotel room what movie was on the hunt for red October love that movie if you've never watched that movie it is one of the best Cold War movies that you're going to come across. Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, Scott Glenn, James Earl Jones, and a list of other great actors. Fred Thompson was in that. I Fred know. Thompson is in there, mm-hmm. yeah. And I always love it when he's in, in movies. He's so, like, just chill. Like, yeah. is, uh, is the camera even rolling? Yeah. Um, and you could tell that that's just how he is in real life. Um Great movie, and actually, it was based off of Tom Clancy's debut novel. Mm-hmm. So, pretty great stuff. That's my book and movie recommendation. You know, I watched Friends while I was uh, in Fredericksburg, but you know, because I was with friends. <laughs> that was trying to save it somehow. Yeah, you can't. All right. Okay. Now, my book and movie. Let's start with mm-hmm. the book, debunking Howard Zinn. Now. I, I let him do that one. I'm doing this one. Oh, you let me. Thank you. You're quite welcome. You know, listen, I, I can't say enough about this book. Um, you know, I get into debates all the time mm-hmm. with people. And, you know, like, I'll give you an example. Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus is one of the, I think it's the first chapter. And I can't tell you how many times I've had debates with people who cited Howard Zinn every time. And they would quote word for word from Howard Zinn. Yeah. Or who Howard Zinn 
plagiarized from uh, a, a communist, a Dutch communist by the name of Koenig. Um, just you, Howard Zinn is one of the reasons why we have so much anti-Americanism and anti-Western civilization in this country today. Yeah. If you want to combat it, you need to read Debunking Howard Zinn. Right. I, I can't say it enough. I, you know, if you're homeschooling, it should be required reading. Yeah. So, now for the movie. Now, I mentioned this earlier. Um, again, it depends on which calendar you use, because I think the Greeks used the wrong calendar. But if you use the one where there's no year zero, 2,500 years ago this week was the, the, the Persian rampage through Greece when they burned Athens you had earlier in this month, you had the, uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, which was seen in the movie 300. Mm -hmm. But the movie 300, Rise of an Empire, which came out later, it, it has uh, Eva Green, who plays uh, Queen Artemisia. I think that's her name. Uh, you had uh, Lena Hetty who played um, the Queen of uh, Sparta. She was, Don't ask me, man. She was, no, she was in the Game of Thrones. Great. Lena Hetty. Never watched it. Not Hedley. Hetty. Uh, she's in there. A um, couple other people. The guy who played uh, in the movie 300, the guy who played Ephialtes, the guy who played Xerxes, mm -hmm. they're all in it. But it's it's a historical fiction in that, you know, they, they, they've they got the right characters. Themistocles is in there, Artemisia's in there. Uh, they, they kind of fictionalize it a bit, but it's a real battle. It's like a Howard Zinn version. Something like that, yes, but... <laughs> You know, it's not it, it's not as good as 300, but for those of us who are history buffs, if mm -hmm. you want to know about the Battle of Salamis, which took place this week, 2,500 years ago, watch it. That's the big naval engagement. That was a real naval engagement. And, oh. it, and it was the high water mark for the Persian invasion of Greece in 480 and 479. So, yeah, watch it. Again, it's not great, but you'll, you will like it nonetheless. Well, our lights are going out, so let's turn out the lights on this show. All righty. Where can people find us? Well, they can find us on our very own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. Lights We're, are going out all I over the place. Know. <laughs> all right, make this quick. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Like us on Facebook, but subscribe to us on YouTube. And also like us or whatever. Follow us on Instagram. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm telling you. Yeah, who's the lighting guy around here? I don't know, but we're gonna. Is it Jared? We're gonna fire him. Where Trash. Where's the scab? Whatever happened to the scab? Scab's dead. Oh. Actually, he likes everything that we do. He's okay. a good guy. Oh, good. Keeping track. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. We hope that you have a great week, and go get these books.